right? And so there's an invitation to come closer. And part of that is I believe others are starting to ask questions. Some of them because they're genuinely worried and they want to know. Some of them because they're just like, I, like, some of them because they want to track you. Whatever the case, the Bible says that people will ask and we ought to be ready to give an answer in season and out of season, right? And so what I want to do is I want to start training you not with what to say because I don't think that works. How many times have you tried the script and you go, like you have a script in your head of, you ever done this? You ever gone into an argument, right? And, and you, know, you know that argument's coming. And so you're you in, in the think tank. For me, the think tank is the shower. And in your head, you rehearse it. You go, I'm going to say this. And they're going to be like, oh, I don't know. And I'm going to do this. And it's going to build. And it's going to build. And then suddenly, and so I've got this script. And I'm going to win the argument. And I come out and I pull out the first thing in the script. They say something off the script. And you go, I... I, I, didn't, I didn't write a part B script. And then what you do is the next day in the shower, you think of all of the things that you could have said to that. Right? <laughs> Well, the Bible says we need to be ready in season and out of season because there are going to be people that ask. And one of the things that concerns me, not, not about you, but about the church, is if the world starts asking, will we give the answer that they need? If the world starts asking, do we have the answer? Now, I believe we have the answer, but do we know the answer? Do we articulate the answer? Do we start to look? And so, so a lot of what I want to do over, over last week, this week, and kind of in, into the future is I want to look at, as Christians, how do we learn to be ready in season and out of season? And I don't think that's about knowing what to think, but it's about learning how to think, right? And so we've been doing that last week. In fact, Rodney came up to me last week and he said, this morning was good, good, and good. He said, all three of your sermons today were very good. (laughs) So uh, I apologize. I realized that in my fervor and in my excitement, I just went, let's do everything last week. Uh, But this morning, I want to kind of pick up on that. We'll go back a little bit to pick up in case you missed. It's good to have an elder who looks out for you, right? And and he managed to frame it so positively. You know, like all three of your sermons this morning were good. Take that and do with it what you will. (laughs) God bless you, Rodney. I love you. Um, So I want to revisit what we've been talking about because I started this series called Prominence or Influence. Prominence or Influence. And the question that I asked is that is God calling his church to be prominent or influential? And is our focus the same thing? Let, let, me, let me quantify that just a little bit with explaining how some of that goes. Uh, I think often the church of the West, the church of the 21st century, is far more concerned with protecting its prominence than it is its influence. And you see this because they get all up in arms anytime something's taken out of the media or anytime there's a negative, you know, and anytime someone wants to change a law that doesn't fit with us. Now, I'm not saying it shouldn't break your heart. I'm not saying it shouldn't move you. But so often the response of the church is we get on Facebook or we get on the news or we get on our platform, whatever your soapbox is, and we start going, this is and we start to go on and on and on about it. And we start to try and protect our prominence and in the process, lose our influence. Does that make sense? And, and, and like, without naming names, you'll be able to think of examples about that at the moment. There's people who you just go, can you please stop dragging the name of my church into the muck with your church and with whatever and whatever's going on? And, and we just go, we, we know internally that there should be a better way. But my question is, can we discover what that better way is? Because I had a vision. Uh, I, I, I would call it a vision now. It was just kind of an imagining. I, I don't know. I'm... I, uh, I'm not very good at spiritualizing things. I'm too normal. Uh, no, that ain't it. What is it? 
I don't know, we'll work it out. If you've got any ideas, submit them to the elders. We'll... But it was this picture in my head, in my mind, it was like my imagining. I didn't see it in front of me. But... And it was this picture of two altars. One was called prominence and one was called influence. And it was like Jesus said to me, which one do you want to worship at? Because the one that you choose will dictate the one that you lose. And I saw, all of, I saw all of these people that I believe resembled the church of God uh, clambering for the mountain of prominence, the altar of prominence. And in the, in the meantime, influence was disappearing. But here's what I want you to understand. God does not need a pulpit or a platform to exalt himself. Right? He doesn't need this church. He doesn't need this. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need, well, I'm going to come back to that, but he doesn't need positions. We, we so often think that the best way to change the world for Jesus is to have the best top position. In fact, that's how Christianity spread across the world in a thing called colonization, and it didn't do us any favors, right? Because we came in and we went, Jesus is your God now, and they went, well, hang on, hang on, hang on. We went, no, 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 no. Prominence, we're just establishing it. It is what it is. And we, you know, we say we're going to take towns for Jesus, and I just go, oh, it sounds painful as much as anything. But then I was thinking about the altar, and I preached on this a couple of years ago. You know, we get so upset when anyone in the world pours cold water on the church, don't we? You pour cold water on the church. I want you to know something. In in 2 Kings, we're not going there this morning. You get this for free. This is sermon number one. (laughs) In 2 Kings, Elijah has a showdown with the prophets of Baal, and he so they makes and he goes, "You pick the bull." In other words, you, you choose which one you think is prominent. You choose the fuzzy one. You choose the one you think is going to burn the best. And then he takes cold water and pours it on his altar because he knows how big his God is. So let me tell you this. If you're stressing right now about the cold water that feels like it's being poured on your faith or on the reputation of your God, don't worry about it. He's not as insecure as we are. He's okay. That's, yeah. So good to have my heckler back. Welcome home. Welcome home. So I want to look at that. And last week we looked at Daniel. We opened the book of Daniel, and I just took this broad glance, and we we looked at uh, the story. Now, most of us know Daniel. In fact, whenever there's any uncertainty in the world, some preacher loves to pull out the book of Daniel and look at the five parts of the statue and the gold and the bronze and the silver, and I don't even know it well enough. And they love to go, oh, this is where we are. Let's interpret the landscape. Let's talk about the end times. Let's put it. I don't want to talk about the end times. I want to talk about Daniel. And we, so we talked about Daniel, who was of, he was either of royal blood or noble family, because Daniel chapter 1 tells us that. And he's taken from Israel when, Israel when the temple's destroyed, when they lose their prominence, and he's taken into Babylon, which to this day in church literature, Babylon kind of symbolizes the world, right? It's the, it's the part that's away from God. And so he's taken it and he ends up serving Nebuchadnezzar. But actually he ends up serving Nebuchadnezzar so well that he finds so much favor and influence with Nebuchadnezzar, even more than his own people. And then he ends up saving his friends. He ends up saving the nation. And then after that, Nebuchadnezzar dies and then it goes on. And so he serves under uh, Belshazzar, who's Nebuchadnezzar's son, and he finds favor with him as well, another Babylonian king. Then Belshazzar, because he's a little bit arrogant, which I'm going to come and recap in a minute, he then gets overtaken. The Persians come in, and they, like, who loves history? Anyone like history? I like history. I'll give you the simple history. So, so the Persians come in, and they take out, they take over Babylon, and so they come in, and, and 
Daniel, as kind of like right hand to the king, at that point should be like, well, let's kill him too. But instead, Daniel finds favor with Darius the Mede and then with Cyrus the Persian. So, so Daniel finds favor with four different kings during his time. And they're all foreign rulers. They're all people that don't worship the same God as he does. They're all people whose political affiliations don't line up with him, but he finds favor with all of them. Are you hearing me this morning, church? Right? And so then let's contrast this with Nebuchadnezzar because this is what I preached last week. Nebuchadnezzar, so Daniel chooses influence over prominence. He's prepared to lose his prominence to gain influence in the kingdom of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, on the other hand, he's the greatest, you know, he's still thought of as the greatest military leader of of his time and and so on and so forth. And he has this vision of a statue in five parts. And what's important is that the statue, the head is made of gold. And Daniel says, that's you. But then everything under the head, the torso is is silver. And that means there is a time where your kingdom is going to end and someone else's kingdom is going to start. And Nebuchadnezzar goes, thank you very much for interpreting the dream. And then goes and builds a statue of solid gold from head to toe, symbolizing my kingdom, my prominence is going to be here forever. I might have had a dream that says it's temporary, but I'm saying right now it's permanent. And the question I asked last week is, are we more like Daniel or are we more like Nebuchadnezzar? Now, we all like to think we're like the hero of the story. But sometimes I wonder if the church is more like Nebuchadnezzar trying to establish its gold statue, trying to establish its empire and going, we're going to be here forever and you can't take us down. But we try to do it through prominence. And one of the things that concerns me at the moment is a lot of the, 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 prophetic, the prophetic prophets, whatever, over the last two years seem to have all got stuck in prophetic words that are promising God is going to restore the prominence of his people. Like you listen to them, you get online, it goes, don't worry about it, God's going to restore the prominence of his people. God's going to restore them, don't worry, God's going to do this, this political leader's going to fall, this political leader's going to do that, this law will be revoked, this rah, 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 prominence, prominence, prominence. I don't think God cares. Because what I see in the Bible is that influence grows the kingdom of God every time. And prominence holds it up. And I'm going to show you that this morning. So we looked at Daniel, who chose influence. We looked at Nebuchadnezzar, who who chose prominence. This morning, I want to talk about generational influence. I want to talk about what happens after Daniel because of Daniel. And then I want you to go away from this place and go, how can I be like Daniel? Right? Because that, if we take on that question and we take on that mindset and that character, we will become like Daniel. We will become like Jesus. We will find influence and favor in our culture, and we will be ready in season and out of season for when people come and ask questions, right? Can we do that? Right. Sermon one down. Let's. Can we turn? In fact, let, let, me, let me give you three more things that will help you to follow me, especially if you're not into history. I want you to remember three names this morning. But let's start by talking about four names that I don't care if you remember. It's just the last one I want you to remember. Gosh, I'm preaching well. That's a terribly confusing sentence. <laughs> so, so we already know that Daniel served Nebuchadnezzar. He served Belshazzar. He served Darius the Mede. And he served Cyrus the Persian. And what's really important, because that's, that's two, four kings and two empires. That's like all of the political affiliations. 
But let's look at Daniel chapter 6, verse 28, which is really important, just to prove where we're going this morning, which says, So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius, that's Darius the Mede, that's going to become important because a lot of people like to call themselves Darius, during the reign of Darius the Mede and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Can you just leave that there for me for a moment, Bo? Because I want you to remember, these are the three names I want you to remember. One, Cyrus the Persian. Number two, got to remember them myself, is Darius the Persian. Not Darius the Mede, Darius the Persian. He came after, he was a king after Cyrus the Persian. So there was Cyrus the Persian, Darius the Persian, and then there's this really cool name, which I, if you ever get a budgie, call him Artaxerxes, okay? <laughs> Artaxerxes. I don't even know if I'm saying that right. So, so, so we've got Cyrus the Persian, Darius the Persian, and Artaxerxes. And those names are going to be really important because they were three kings of Babylon. They weren't kings of Israel. They weren't leaders of the church. They weren't kings of God's kingdom. They were kings of Babylon, which was seen for all intents and purposes as the kingdom of the world. Starting with Cyrus the Persian, who Daniel finds favor with. This is important. Now turn to Ezra chapter 1. If you've got your Bibles. If you don't, they're going to come up on the screen. I'm going to move quite quickly, so if you can't keep up, they're up there. Uh, first and Second Kings, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra. Right, if you're looking for it. So Ezra follows on immediately from the story of Daniel, and this is how we know, because it starts like this: In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, that's the same Cyrus, right? So that's the Cyrus who Daniel has found favor with. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord fulfilled the prophecy he had given through Jeremiah. You want to read that? It's Jeremiah chapter 25. He stirred the heart of Cyrus. Get this. God stirred the heart of the Babylonian king or the Persian king. Can God do that? You better believe he can. Next time I ask that question, I want a far more faithful response. Right? So, So God stirred the heart of Cyrus to put this proclamation in writing and send it throughout his kingdom. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, because all authority comes from God. Strange that he knows that, and the church sometimes forgets it. The Lord of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has appointed appointed me to build him a temple at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. You can't make this stuff up. Any of you who are his people may go to Jerusalem and Judah to rebuild this temple of the Lord, the God of Israel who lives in Jerusalem. But get this, and may your God be with you wherever this Jewish remnant is found. Let their neighbors, their Babylonian, their Persian, let their neighbors contribute towards their expenses by giving them silver and gold, supplies for the journey and livestock, as well as a voluntary offering for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then God stirred the hearts of the priests and the Levites and the leaders of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin to go to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple of the Lord. Uh, Let's keep going. And all of the neighbors assisted. All of the neighbors assisted. All of the Babylonian, all of the Persian neighbors, neighbors assisted by giving them articles of silver and gold supplies for the journey and livestock. They gave them many valuable gifts in addition to all the voluntary offerings. King Cyrus himself brought out the articles that King Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the Lord's temple and placed in the temple of his own gods. Cyrus directed another budgie name, the treasurer of Persia, to count these items and present them to another name, Shishbazar, the leader, my goodness, (laughs) 
the leader of the exiles returning to Judah. And, and let's just jump down to verse 11 there. It says, in all, there were 5,400 articles of gold and silver given by the ruler of Babylon or Persia. Sheshbazar brought all of these when the exiles went from Babylon to Jerusalem. If you're taking notes, here's what I want you to remember here. Daniel's relationship with Nebuchadnezzar, then Belshazzar, then Darius, and then Cyrus for this one. Darius, Daniel's relationship with Cyrus paved the way for the return from exile. Right? Because Daniel chose influence over prominence, he paved the way. Cyrus becomes so impressed. So you got to remember, what was the main goal of Babylon and Persia? Like world domination, prominence. Like we want to be prominent, we want to be prominent. But I like this guy so much that we should let them go back and build their thing. Do you, do you see how countercultural that is to what, to what Cyrus would have been trying to achieve? But he finds so much favor with Daniel that he goes, let's send these people back. If we were to read on in chapter 2, here's what really interests me. Chapter 2 lists all of the exiles who return in that first wave. Daniel's not in them. Daniel's not among them. Now, we know Daniel's still alive and, and because, let me give you one quick verse for that. Daniel chapter 10 verse 1 says... In the third year of the reign of King Cyrus of Persia, Daniel had another vision. That's all we need to know there. So in the third year of Cyrus, Daniel had a vision. When did Cyrus send them home? In the first year. So in the first year, when everybody goes home, Daniel goes, I'm going to stay. Isn't that weird? Daniel could have gone, I'm going back home to my prominence. In fact, I'm going to go home, and they're probably going to honor me because I paved the way for this. I did this, and now is my time. I've done my years of influence, and now it's time for prominence. He goes, no, no. No, I'm going to stay, and I'm going to keep serving Cyrus. Selah. So they go home, because Daniel paves the way. But now I want you to watch. I, I, want, I want to draw three stories to show what happens after that. So presumably by this stage, we don't know exactly when Daniel dies, but we don't hear about him again. So at this point, Daniel has been so influential that he's no longer part of the story. That's how you know you've done influence well, yeah. right? It's not what we like. We all want to put our name on the top of the tower. But you know you've done influence well when you're no longer part of the story, but the story carries on without you, right? So the story starts to carry on. And in Ezra, we start to see his three different stories. Let's go to Ezra chapter 4. And let's read from verse 1 to 4, and then we're going to jump to 24, because the author of Ezra did a Star Wars on us and moved the middle to the end, and the end to the, I don't know, like, if you, if you watch Star Wars, you know what I mean. Like, we've got episodes that are out of order. Ezra thought it was important to do, I don't know why. Ezra chapter 4, verse 1. The enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were rebuilding a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel. So they approached Zerubbabel and the other leaders, and they said, let us build with you. For we worship your God just as you do. We have sacrificed to him ever since King Esherah of Assyria brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Yeshua, and the other leaders of Israel replied, You may have no part in this work. We alone will build the temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, just as King Cyrus of Persia commanded us. 
Then the local residents tried to discourage and frighten the people of Judah to keep them from their work. They bribed agents to work against them and to frustrate their plans. This went on during the entire reign of King Cyrus of Persia and lasted until King Darius of Persia took the throne. Uh, verse, jump now down to 24. So the work on the temple of God in Jerusalem had stopped and it remained at a standstill until the second year of King Darius of Persia. So, so there's a couple of kings between Cyrus and Darius, but they're not important. What it matters is there's a long time. So Cyrus sends them out. Some people put a hold to the work, and I could go into a theology exercise on that, but I don't want to just right now. Uh, and then Darius becomes king. Now watch what happens when Darius becomes king. Because So I'm going to paraphrase a little bit. Uh, basically, Darius sends some people... Uh, he hears about what's going on and he hears about this building because Darius comes in and they go, oh, new king, let's just start building and see what happens. Some messengers, the same enemies again who tried to stop them the first time, they write a letter to Darius the king and they go, hey, Darius, the Jews are building a temple and you probably, as the king of Persia, you probably don't want that to happen because if they build their temple, they're going to do rowdy, 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 rowdy. So Darius sends a message to them and goes, who told you you could do this? Who told them they could do this? Cyrus. Cyrus told them. So they send, and let's go to let's go Ezra chapter 5, verse 3 to 13. In fact, no, let's jump down to verse 6. Can we do that, Bo? Is that too much difficulty? So they write the letter. Darius sends for the sake of time, goes, Who told you you could do this? This is the copy. So verse 6, this is a copy of the letter that, that Tatsunai, the governor, sent to King Darius. To King Darius, greetings. The king should know that we went to the construction site of the temple of the great God in the province of Judah. It is being rebuilt with specially prepared stones and timber is being laid in its walls. The work is going forward with great energy and success. We asked the leaders, because they didn't know, because they're a new generation, so we're like, hey, who did tell us we could do this? Did someone give us permission? You ever do something without knowing why you're doing it? <laughs> Sometimes it's good to look back. So, so they go, who, who gave you permission to do this and restore this structure? And we demanded their name so that we could tell you who the leaders were because we figure you probably want to kill them. This is their answer. We are the servants of God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the temple that was built here in the many, uh, many years ago by the great kings of Israel. But because our ancestors angered the God of heaven, he abandoned them to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, who destroyed this temple and exiled the people of Babylonia, uh, people to Babylonia. However, King Cyrus of Babylon, this is awkward, <laughs> during the first year of his reign, issued a decree that the temple of God should be rebuilt. Right? So they send this letter. There's more to it, but that'll do for now. They send this letter off, and, and so Darius gets it. And Darius, because you, know, you have libraries and books, he goes, let's go consult the library of King Cyrus and see if that's a true story. So he goes back, and he reads, and he finds out that it is. And if you were to read chapter 6, verse 3 to whatever, you'd read the memorandum. But let's pick it up in Ezra chapter 6. No, let's do it. Let's do it. Let's go verse 1. This is helpful, eh? Yeah. Like rather than, yeah, cool. So King Darius issued orders that, an, that a search be made of the Babylonian archives, which were stored in the treasury, because it was at the fortress of... Blah, 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 blah. The memorandum, verse 3. In the first year of King Cyrus's reign, a decree was sent out concerning the temple of God at Jerusalem. 
Let the temple be rebuilt on the site where Jews used to offer their sacrifices using the original foundations. Its height will be 90 feet. Its width will be 90 feet. Let's, let's skim forward. Verse 6. Thanks, Bo. I realize I'm making this really easy for you today. So King Darius sent this message. In response to reading King Cyrus's memorandum, he says, Now therefore, Tatanai, governor of the province west of the Euphrates, River and the Shetharbons, your colleagues and your other, <laughs> stay away. Do not disturb the construction of the temple of the Lord. Let it rebuilt on its original site and do not hinder the governor of Judah nor the elders of the Jews in their work. Let's stop there. I'll read you the last line. It says, I, Darius, have issued this decree. Let it be obeyed with all its diligence. Here's what I want you to know. Here's what I want us to take. Again, if you're writing down. So note number one was Daniel's influence paved the way for the exiles to return. Number two is when Darius becomes king and he goes in and he goes, what happened here? And they send him a letter and he looks back and goes, oh, you're right. He issues a decree. This is the sentence I want you to write. This is what I want you to either write it down or commit it to memory. Because of Israel's history of influence, the work of God's people was allowed to continue. Right? Because of the history of influence, the work of God's people was allowed to continue. Remember, Daniel's dead by this point. But he's had such an influence that now Darius the Persian is reading and he's going, I don't know what these people did, but it must have been good. Let them carry on. Right? How many people would love that to be the opinion of most of the world that doesn't come to church. I don't know what they do, but it's got to be good, so let them carry on. Not only that, but Darius actually goes in the bit that we didn't read. He goes, give them more money. Give them more resources. Imagine if if, your government's sitting there and go, well, I don't know what the church does, but it's clearly good. Let's give them some money so they can keep doing it. Right? I need you to know that it was the influence that paved the way for that. Right? Because I want you to read the second story. Now we're going to do a Star Wars and we're going to jump back to Ezra chapter 4. Because the middle of Ezra chapter 4 actually takes place after. Because it happens under Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes came after Darius. I know, it's very confusing. Just think of him as Darth Vader and it'll all be fine. Alright. Ezra chapter 4. Let's pick up verse 6 to 7. And then we'll jump into 11 and 23. Years later, so this is years after Darius again, because between Darius, so there was Xerxes, Artaxerxes, I don't know, there were a lot of, there were like, everybody loved to be called Darius, everybody loved to be called Artaxerxes, because they wanted to be like the other one, right? So, years later, when Xerxes began his reign, the enemies of Judah, again, same people, wrote a letter of accusation against the people of Judah and Jerusalem. Even later, during the reign of King Artaxerxes of Persia, so this is the third name, during the the reign of King Artaxerxes of Persia, the enemies of Judah, led by those people, those people, those people, uh, sent a letter to Artaxerxes in the Aramaic language, and it was translated for the king. Let's jump now down to verse 11. This is a copy of their letter. To King Artaxerxes, from your loyal subjects in the 
<laughs> Can you hear that? From your loyal subjects, like, we don't really know who you are. You don't even have much to, but from your loyal subjects in the province west of the Euphrates River, the king should know that the Jews who came here to Jerusalem from Babylon are rebuilding the rebellious and evil city. Remember, Darius had forgotten that. Obviously, Artaxerxes has forgotten that. They're still rebuilding. They've already laid the foundation and will finish its walls. And the king should know that if this city is rebuilt and its walls are completed, it will be much disadvantage to you. For the Jews will then refuse to pay their tribute, their custom, their tolls, and their taxes to you. Since we are your loyal subjects, and we do not want to see the king dishonored in any way... Everyone's got a friend like that. eh? We have sent the king this information. We suggest that a search be made in your ancestors' records where you will discover what a rebellious city this has been in the past. In fact, it was destroyed because of its long and troublesome history of revolt against kings and countries who controlled it. We declare to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls are completed, the province west of the Euphrates River will be lost to you. So get this, the person who writes a letter to Darius goes, go consult your records and find out how influential we were. The enemies go, go consult your history and find out how arrogant these people were. So Artaxerxes does that, verse 17. Then King Artaxerxes, so he looks, and it says, to rehum the governor Shimshai, the court secretary, why do we do this to ourselves? And the colleagues living in Samaria, colleagues, and throughout the province, rest of province west of the Euphrates River. Greetings. The letter you sent me has been translated and read to me. I ordered a search of the records uh, of, that have been found in Jerusalem, oh, sorry, and have found that Jerusalem has indeed been a hotbed of insurrection against many kings. In fact, rebellion and revolt are normal there. Are, rebe- are rebellion and re- revolt normal in the church? Never. Of course not. No, we, we don't have a reputation for you know, that at all. Powerful kings have ruled over Jerusalem and the entire province west of the Euphrates River, receiving tributes, customs, and tolls. Therefore, issue orders to have these men stop their work. That city must not be built except at my express command. Be diligent and don't neglect this matter, for we must not permit the situation to harm the king's interests. When this letter from King Artaxerxes was read to the people and their colleagues, they hurried to Jerusalem. Then with a show of strength, a show of prominence, they forced the Jews to stop building. So let's recap. Point number one, Daniel's influence paved the way for the exiles to return to Jerusalem. Number two was because of their history of influence, the work of God's people was allowed to continue. But then we get King Artaxerxes, and he comes in and he reads a different account. Both accounts are true, right? He just happens to read a different account. You ever notice that history all depends on what account you read? And so he reads a different account. And this is what I want you to write down here. So, so number one, I, I want to make sure you really get this because I know I'm being wordy, so if I can get you to get the four points in between, it'll all make sense. Daniel paved the way for God's people to return from exile. The influence of God's people allowed the work, sorry, because of their history of influence, the work of God's people was allowed to continue. But because of Israel's history of prominence and rebellion, 
the work of God's people was forced to stop. So because of their influence, the work was allowed to continue. But because of their history of prominence, the work had to stop. Here's my question for the church of 2021. Does the Christian church have a history of influence or of prominence? The answer is yes. Both. Right? We all have parts of our story, and, and, and people love to bring up the history of prominence of the church and what we did when we were prominent, which was wrong, to justify why the church should be irrelevant today. But when people hear the history of the influence of the church, they go, I like these people. Which raises the question right now, how does the Babylon of today feel about the church? And whose fault is that? Oh, it's got real quiet in here real quick, didn't it? Just like, like that hit me between the eyes, between the chest. And so, because we have all been part of the history of prominence, and we've all been part of the history of influence in the church. We've all done things in the name of Jesus that Jesus probably wouldn't have put his name on, right? But equally, we've all done things that are wonderful, and we need to reclaim and retell our history of influence because that's what's going to change the world. Amen. Recently, um, we had... I'm just going to, I'm going to tell you this story openly and honestly. We're going to have, we had some... Um, members of the district council here, because they'd heard a little bit about what we were doing. They came to see, again, the reputation of, you know. Now, I don't know much about their personal journey. I couldn't even tell you exactly who they were. Uh, but they came in, and they had some views of the history of the prominence of the church. And because of that, one of the things that they couldn't work out was why we have people in the church who are members, and, and in the extended church and in our forum and what we do, who are members of the LGBT community. Because they went, that doesn't sound like the church we know, Right? Because doesn't the prominent church, they didn't say prominent, right? But their essential question was, doesn't the church hate these people? And I went, no, you've heard the history wrong. Because I want you, and I want you to know this. In, 1980, in the 1980s, when the AIDS pandemic was at its peak, and the LGBT community were considered the modern-day leper of society, nobody wanted to see them, nobody wanted to be with them, no one wanted to treat them. It was the Christian nuns who went, we will go and we will be their nurses. I said to them, you got this all wrong. And whose fault is that? We have lent into the prominence instead of the influence. I said, actually, the church were the first people to give a damn. When you didn't care, the church cared. But we have forgotten that history. And therefore, the community have forgotten that history. And we need to go back and we need to discover what it means to be influential instead of prominent. So... Let me bring it home because I want to show you. Like right now, you may feel like it, and, and to know, like we don't know how good we've got it, right, in the world that we live in. We're not under dictatorship rule like the Israelites who are under Babylon or under Persia or under whatever. We're simply in a society where people know more about prominent Christianity than they do about influential Christianity, and therefore they're a little bit unsure about what to think of you, right, and me, and us. And there's all sorts of voices in the, in the public eye that make that really hard. And right now, you might feel like your ministry 
or your gospel, your evangelism, your, your relationships around sharing the good news of Jesus, you might feel a little bit like the Jews probably did under Artaxerxes. Like, all of my work has stopped. I don't feel like I can share anymore. I'm not allowed to do Bible in schools anymore. I'm not allowed to, uh, to, to talk about this in my workplace. I'm not allowed to whatever. I'm not allowed to... And, and all these different things. And we can get on our prominent high horse and protest all of that and just continue to lose influence. Right? Or... Because here's, here's what I want you to know. Artaxerxes was the one who stopped the work. And he specifically said, we read it in chapter 4, verse 21. Therefore, issue orders to have these men stop their work. That city must not be rebuilt except at my express command. So we talked about Daniel. We've looked at the book of Ezra. To finish this morning, I want us to look at the book of Nehemiah. Have you ever read the book of Nehemiah? If your church has ever done a building project, you've heard about Nehemiah. That's when they pull it out. It's like, we've got a building project. We, let's read the book of Nehemiah. Let's raise funds. But there's something else that we miss in the book of Nehemiah that's incredibly beautiful. Because Nehemiah is the next Daniel. Nehemiah is the book immediately after Esther. So if you turn about five, six pages, you will find Nehemiah. Let me read to you chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, then jump to 11. These are the memoirs of Nehemiah, son of Harry. (laughs) In late autumn, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was at the fortress of Susa. Hanani, one of my brothers, came to visit me with some other men who had just arrived from Judah. I asked them about the Jews who had returned there from captivity and about how things were going in Jerusalem. How were things going in Jerusalem? Not well, right? They said to me, things are not going well for those who returned from the province of Judah. They are in great trouble and disgrace. The walls of Jerusalem have been torn down. The gates have been destroyed with fire. When I heard this, I sat down and I wept. In fact, for days I mourned, fasted, and prayed to the God of heaven. I love that that's his first response. I mourned, fasted, and prayed to the God of heaven. I started a committee. No, not yet. I gathered a bunch, no, I mourned, fasted, and prayed to the God of heaven. And then verse 11, the end of verse 11, uh, so, so in the middle is the prayer. I encourage you to go and read it. I just, short of reading all of Ezra and Nehemiah, we'll run out of time. He says, oh Lord, please hear my prayer. Listen to the prayers of those, who del- those of us who delight in honoring you. Please grant me success today by making the king favorable to, to, favorable to me. Put it in his heart for me to be kind to him. In those days, I was the king's cupbearer. King who? Artaxerxes. You're like, I know that. Arthur. No, that's another king. He does it. He did a different thing. <laughs> right? So, Artaxerxes stops the work and he says, and make sure it stops unless it's at my word. And so, God's solution is to take King Artaxerxes out. Nope. Nope. God's solution is to raise up a cupbearer to the king. Oh, I wish some people could get excited with me this morning. I just wish you could. And watch this. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1 to 8. Early the following spring, 
it's a little bit of time. In the month of Nisan, during the 20th year, still in the same year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was serving the king his wine. You want to earn favor with God and with the world? Read into that what you will. I have never before appeared sad in his presence. So the king asked me, King Artaxerxes, King Artaxerxes, who says, stop the work of the Jews. Sees Nehemiah looking sad, and he says, why are you looking so sad? You do not look sick to me. You must be deeply troubled. And then I was terrified. Because I thought I was ready in season and out of season, but I had a script in my head, and this isn't how I saw it. Oh my goodness, I've got to have the words now. And he goes, um, long live the king. How can I not be sad? What I want you to notice here is long live the king from Nehemiah is very different to we as your loyal subjects from the earlier party. One of them was about manipulation. The other one's about submission. And Nehemiah says, long live the king. How can I not be sad? For the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins and the gates have been destroyed with fire. And the king asked, how can I help you? With a prayer to God, with, with a prayer to the God of heaven, I replied. Like, right? I love that. With a prayer to the God of heaven. Like, he's in a conversation and he stopped to pray. It's like, how can I help you? If it pleases the Lord of heaven. You ever done that? You ever, you ever stopped to pray and just gone, no, it's like the most powerful prayer you will ever pray is Holy Spirit, help! I'm just going to get back on the gravy train. With a prayer to the God of heaven, I replied, if it pleases the king, and if you are pleased with me, if you are pleased with me, your servant, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. The king, with the queen sitting beside him, said, how long will you be gone? When will you return? After I told him how long I would be gone, the king agreed to my request. I also said to the king, if it please the king, let him have letters addressed to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates, instructing them to let me travel safely through their territory on my way to Judah. And please give me a letter addressed to Asaph, the manager of the king's forest, instructing him to give me timber. I will need to make beams for the gates of the temple fortress, for the city walls, and a house for myself. And the king granted these requests because the gracious hand of God was on me. Pause. Let's remember, let's remember our history here. Daniel paved the way, through, through his influence, paved the way for, the Israel, for Israel to return from exile. Because, under, under Darius, because of their history of influence, the work of God's people was allowed to continue. Number three, because of God's people's history of prominence, the work of God's people was forced to stop by Artaxerxes. But all it took to reshape the opinion of an entire nation in the eyes of the king was one person to choose the path of influence instead of the path of prominence. I'm begging you, church. I'm, nah, I'm exhorting you, church, to be the church that chooses the path of influence Amen. in this time. There are too many Christians choosing the path of prominence and it is hindering the work of God. 
God does not need a platform to magnify his name. He just needs people who are willing to give up their prominence to be influential in the kingdom of God. Let me bring it all the way home now. I can have three minutes more of your time. All throughout the Bible, all throughout the Old Testament of the Bible, we spent a lot of time in the Old Testament of the Bible today. All throughout the Old Testament, there is a promise of a coming Messiah. And Israel missed him because they were looking for a man who was going to restore their prominence. And Jesus wasn't interested. If you're praying to God that he will restore his prominence, change your prayer because he doesn't care. I know, that, I know that's harsh. I just See, and the reason that I know that he doesn't care is because he didn't care about his own. The Bible says that Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be clung to, but gave up his prominence to come and take on the nature of a servant. And then that God, that Messiah, comes and he says, the Son of Man did not come to serve, to be served, but to serve. He then says, the greatest among you must become the other's servant. He says, whoever humbles themselves will be exalted. He says, I'm sending you out, so be as gentle as doves, but as wise as serpents. Jesus did not come to establish prominence. He came to establish influence. And he invites you this morning to do the same. And right now you are surrounded every day by a world that competes for prominence. We live in the generation of the Instagram influencer. They're not influencers, they're prominence grabbers. How many followers can I get? How prominent can I make myself? We live in a world, and right now you might be surrounded every day by prominence and go, you know what, I just, I'm tired of the race. I'm tired of keeping up with the Joneses. I'm tired of feeling like I have to do this or do that or do whatever. They're not offended. They're on morning tea. We've got morning tea back this morning, people. It's wonderful. I know. (laughs) You're like, I think. (laughs) And right now you might be surrounded by the race of prominence and you're exhausted by it. This morning, Jesus invites you to a new journey. And he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And you don't have to compete anymore. You don't have to worry about the top job. You don't have to worry about the top salary. You don't have to worry. You simply have to worry. You, know, you simply have to concern yourself yes. with following me. Being like Daniel. Being like Nehemiah. Being like Jesus. And the kingdom of God will grow. There's a proverb that says the lizard can be caught by the hand but it is found in the palace of kings simply by being who it is. I want to release you this morning to be who you are and influence the kingdom of Babylon for the kingdom of God. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you That you gave up your prominence for us. And we thank you 
that through the entire history of the church, you have called us to do the same. Lord, we remind ourselves this morning that every time we have got caught up in prominence, we have held up the work of God. Every time we've become more concerned with a building than with a movement, or more concerned with a song selection than the person we're singing about, we've held up the work of God. But Lord, every time we have simply said, here I am, use me, where I am, you have built the kingdom of God. And so Lord, this morning, I thank you across this room for people of influence. I thank you for teachers who right now are trying to work out exactly how they feel about themselves and about their friends. Lord, I pray they would choose the path of influence and not the path of prominence, whatever that looks like. Lord, far be it from me to say what that is and what that isn't, but I pray that you give them the wisdom of Daniel to know. Lord, I thank you for doctors and nurses that love you and that walk that tension right now between their faith communities and what people in their faith communities are saying and what they've been taught and what they know. And Lord, again, it's not for me to say, but Lord, right now, they're caught in the middle of all of that. We're all caught in the middle of conversations right at the moment. Lord, I pray that we would choose and they would choose the path of influence and not the path of prominence. Lord, I thank you for our early childhood teachers. I thank you for our tradies, those who build. Lord, the first people you anointed in the Bible were craftsmen. They were not preachers. Lord, I thank you this morning for truck drivers. Lord, I thank you for hospitality workers. I thank you for all of the different careers that I haven't mentioned here that we could sit here for hours. But Lord, I pray that each of those people has been placed to be a Daniel, to be a Nehemiah in their workplace, in their communities. And Lord, this morning, I pray that they would choose the path of influence over the path of prominence. And Lord, I pray as they choose influence that they would find favour. And Lord, I pray as they find favour that they would find inroads. And as they find inroads, those around them would find salvation. We ask this in your name, mighty Jesus. Amen. Amen.